The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone, this is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. Um, Our show topic is obsessive compulsive disorder and our guest um, expert is Dr. Charles Brady who directs the Lindner Center of Hope Obsessive Compulsive Disorder and Anxiety Treatment Program. Dr. Brady leads the research and development of the Center's Psychiatric Rehabilitation Programming. He is a clinical psychologist with over 20 years experience on the staff and faculty at the University of Cincinnati's Department of Psychiatry. In addition to to providing clinical services at the University of Cincinnati, he trains and supervises interns, doctoral students, postdoctoral fellows, psychiatric residents, psychiatric fellows, and psychiatrists. Dr. Brady earned his Doctorate of Clinical Community Psychology from the University of South Carolina and completed his postdoctorate fellowship in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. He has completed training in the treatment of obsessive-compulsive disorder and obsessive-compulsive disorder spectrum disorders through the Behavioral Therapy Institute. Dr. Brady is board certified in clinical psychology by the American Board of Professional Psychology. Welcome, Dr. Brady. Thank you, Mary. It's good to be on your show. Thanks for the invitation. Well, yeah, well we're, we're thrilled to have you. Um, uh, and to talk about obsessive compulsive disorder because I think it's it's something that um, people don't understand totally, and I think oftentimes um, it gets mis- misdiagnosed or mischaracterized. So maybe you could begin by just explaining to our audience what is obsessive compulsive disorder. Sure, I'd be glad to, Mary. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder it, it's um, it's an illness to start with. It's something that we have very strong evidence that is caused by the brain and not working the way that it's supposed to. Um, now sometimes people will uh, talk about obsessive-compulsive traits and characteristics they have. This is not what we're talking about. Those might be things that sometimes people joke about or think are, are, are a little bit funny or humorous, but obsessive-compulsive disorder, when you look at it as an illness, it can be a tremendously crushing experience. Um, we know that for adults uh, between 14 and uh, 55, it's in the top 20 causes of disability, um, and that was rated by the uh, World Health Organization. Um, we also know that when it's left untreated, the folks who suffer it can become very depressed, and there are some studies that show between 5 and 25% of folks uh, with obsessive-compulsive disorder you know, may actually have suicide attempts at some point during their experience with the illness. But the illness itself, basically, it's characterized by the person experiencing 
persistent thoughts, urges, or impulses that come into their mind, that come into their experience, and the person doesn't like them. They don't invite these thoughts or experiences or urges in. They don't match their value system. They find them very distasteful. They find them repugnant. They they, they wish that they would never have them. And when they have these, these experiences, it creates a great amount of anxiety and distress. And in response to that distress, the person tries to figure out a strategy. They try to figure out, how can I help myself get rid of this distress? And so what they will typically resort to is they will develop some behaviors that we call compulsions. Um, for the person who might be afraid that germs are going to make them sick, they figure out, well, if I wash my hands, that helps me feel a little better. The problem is it's a bit of a trap because for the person with OCD, the way that the brain is, is functioning is that the more they do the compulsions, even though it provides some short-term relief, it actually ends up in the long-term increasing their anxiety and distress so that what may start out as a little bit of hand-washing starts to grow over time and they need more and more of the behavior of the compulsion to bring down their distress level, which is one of the reasons why when OCD remains untreated, that it tends to grow. It, 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 it's not one of those conditions that tends to show up and arrive and usually just kind of stay put at a certain level because in order to, to calm the anxiety, the person tries harder and, and harder to, to, to quiet it down by doing more and more compulsions. So um, basically, what is at the core of obsessive-compulsive disorder is anxiety? It's the anxiety. It's the distress. You know, there's one, one general rule we know about the brain. The brain does not like distress. It does not like pain. And whenever it feels any distress, um, quite naturally, we, we have a signal in the brain to, to try to get away from that distress. Now, if, for instance, if, if we put our hand on a hot stove, the brain gives a very quick signal to tell us to take that hand off, that we don't like that feeling, we don't like the pain. And it's, it's a very good reaction when everything's working well in the brain because it, it keeps us safe. The difficulty with OCD is the, the mechanisms in the brain, in a sense, are starting to give too many false alarms. It's starting to interpret too many situations as potentially life-threatening that really aren't. And when it, that life-threatening signal goes off in the brain, the person feels compelled to do something to try to bring that pain down to a, a tolerable level, to bring that anxiety down to a level that they can manage and tolerate. What causes obsessive-compulsive disorder? Well, we have a lot of evidence that it has a strong biological component. There are many studies out there that suggest that there's a very strong genetic hereditary component to it. Um, there are also some cases where we've seen absent of um, heredity, we have seen it pop up in individuals where they may have suffered certain traumas. Um, but for the most part, what we believe, it's, there's very strong evidence to suggest that this is a very brain-based biological disorder that has a very strong genetic component to it. And that's something that we see in my, my practice day in and day out as we talk with individuals who suffer this. And we ask them about family members, uncles, aunts, grandparents. It's not unusual for them to start to describe a relative who, even though they may never have been formally diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, it turns out that they may likely have had it and you know, never received treatment for it. But we can see 
many, many instances where we see it existing um, in some form on the family tree. I interviewed a couple of years ago um, a man who was a, a veteran, and he was in the Marine Corps, and he developed a severe case of OCD in response to trauma, having been in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and, um, and it was debilitating for him when he came home. Yeah, that, that, that doesn't surprise me. Um, combat, trauma, uh, a, a victim of violent crime, there are times where a person may develop OCD. Now, many times in, the, in that situation that they'll have two issues that they're fighting. They'll be having the OCD, but it's not unusual also in a situation like that where the person may also be battling post-traumatic stress disorder also that we would then need to, to treat and to focus on too. So, um, can you explain to our audience what an obsession is? Sure. An, an obsession is something that comes into the mind that we don't like. Now, the one interesting thing with obsessive-compulsive disorder is most of the thoughts that a person with obsessive-compulsive disorder experiences are not very different from what you and I experience. It's not the content of the thought that really separates it. For instance, it's, we know that it's a very common thought for people who drive on highways to have a thought sometime during their driving experience that pops into the mind and they think, gee, what would happen if I swerved into oncoming traffic? Now, for most people who experience that, and the studies show that most people who spend a lot of time driving will have that thought from time to time, but they don't even notice it because it lasts for a brief second and it does not create any emotional arousal to that thought. And so the person even forgets that they had the thought. It seems like, well, that's no big deal. Whatever. Who cares about that thought? It doesn't mean anything to me. And so they forget that they've even had the thought. Now, the person with OCD is not as lucky because when they're having that thought, when they're experiencing in the the part of the brain that we call the cortex that experiences thoughts, that thought travels down through what we call a filtering system and ignites a more primitive part of the brain in the midbrain, an area that involves the amygdala, that gets startled. And so that person driving down the highway who has obsessive compulsive disorder, they have that thought. And instead of bouncing through the filtering system and being forgotten about, it goes right through and ignites a terror response. And so now this poor person driving down the highway has the thought And now they have a strong emotional reaction because they had the thought. And it's that emotional reaction, which is the same type of reaction that if you open your door and a tiger was charging, that part of the brain should be activated because a tiger is life-threatening. But the poor person on the highway had that random thought, is having a strong response of terror to it, and so they become afraid. They start thinking, well, boy, if I had that thought and I'm having this strong reaction to it, maybe that thought is really meaningful. Maybe that really means something about me. Maybe just maybe I'm a danger to people out on the highway. And so in order to protect themselves and others, they think they need to do something to try to not have that thought. And that's where the compulsions start to come in. So the poor person driving down the highway may start to say, I know if if, if I'm driving down the highway, Maybe I'll start praying, and if I pray, maybe that will keep that thought out of my mind. And so they pray, but then the thought comes back. Because there's one thing that we we tend to know about the nature of thoughts and obsessions. 
And this has been something that we've known for you know, hundreds of years, even back in the 1600s when we first see evidence of OCD, is that the more that you try not to have a thought, the more that thought will stick and come at you. You know, there's a, there's a classic example we talk about. We invite people to challenge themselves for one minute to try to not have a thought or an image of a blue bunny in your mind. Now, the more that you try to do that, the more likely you are to lose. And it's something that we lose because the brain's not able to do it. Because in order for the brain to try to not have an experience or a thought, the only way it knows how to try that is that it has to think about, well, what is this thought I'm not supposed to be having? And I have to go check to see if it's there. So this is one of the reasons why the poor person with with OCD, as they're in the highway, they start praying, hoping and hoping that that thought won't come back, but they've just turned it into a blue bunny. And so in the middle of praying, they check to see, good, I think I feel better. Is that thought going to come back? And as soon as they check for it, they notice it's there. And then they can get frightened again, which then leads them to think, oh, if I prayed a little bit, maybe I have to pray harder. And it can get to the point where they're not just doing things like praying or um, counting in their head to try not to have that thought. They may even decide that, well, I know in order to keep myself safe and to keep other, other drivers safe, maybe what I need to do is to get off the highways and drive on the side streets. And so then they start to avoid doing things, trying to get rid of the anxiety even before it shows up. And this is one of the reasons why with OCD, as the illness goes on and it if it's not treated, why it's so common for people with OCD to develop depression as a result. Because what they start to experience is that their life begins to shrink. Things that they used to do, they stop doing because they're trying to avoid anxiety spikes. And this is tormenting for people. I mean, almost torturous, isn't it? I mean, this is a lot of distress. Oh, absolutely. The, it's not surprising why so many people with obsessive compulsive disorder develop depression. I'm, in my job, I'm more surprised when someone has obsessive compulsive disorder that they haven't experienced depression. We know the studies that look at the relationship between depression suggest that folks with obsessive compulsive disorder, well over two-thirds to three-fourths of them will have had a major depressive episode at some point. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk about compulsion. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? 
Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan and Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Charles Brady, who is Director of the Lindner Center of Hope's Obsessive Compulsive Disorder and Anxiety Treatment Program. And prior to our commercial, uh, Dr. Brady was telling us about what um, obsessiveness is, and um, we're going to talk now about compulsions. So obsessiveness is focused on the thoughts, if I, if I understood what you said earlier. Right. Exactly. Hmm. Here, uh, obsessions are the thoughts or the experiences that come into the person's awareness. Now, compulsions, in a sense, are, become their strategy. They're the things that a person does to try to reduce their distress level. Now, compulsions can be things that are clearly visible. A person who is afraid of germs, if they wash their hands a lot or spend hours in the shower, that would be considered a compulsion. That would be what we call a very clear behavioral compulsion. And behavioral compulsions basically are those things that anyone can witness a person doing. For instance, a person who has an obsession that they're afraid that they didn't turn the stove off in their house or lock their doors may go back many times to check the stove, to check the doors. Those would be other examples of behavioral compulsions. There are also other compulsions that people do that others can't see. These are sometimes what we call mental compulsions. For instance, a person who is uh, worried about, did I lock my house? Did I check the stove? They may not physically go back, but they may do something that we, we call mental review, where they may try to replay their memory, trying to see if they can recall them seeing themselves do those actions close the door, turn off the stove. Uh, A person who has an obsession worried if they offended someone earlier in the day by something that they said, they may replay that conversation over and over in their head to try to get a sense of certainty of, let's see, did I say something wrong? Did I upset them? And so their compulsion would be something that no one can see, but is something going on inside their mind. Likewise, other examples of mental compulsions can include counting. A person may count inside their head because they have a preference. If they count to a certain number, they just feel as if things are safe, that whatever distress the obsession brought is then neutralized. Now, the third type of compulsion... I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, The third type of compulsion is one that happens actually before the anxiety arrives. And many people don't call this a compulsion, 
but they may call it a neutralizing act. And this is what I referred to before as avoidant behaviors, where the person tries to avoid the anxiety, avoid the obsession even arriving so that they then will not have to deal with it. So a person who has an obsession about germs may stop going to the doctor's office, may stop going to their child's school because they're afraid that they may get the obsession of getting sick if they go into those public places. At what age can people begin to develop obsessive-compulsive disorder? Yeah. Um, OCD can start in early childhood. Um, we've seen evidence of preschoolers showing very clear obsessive-compulsive disorder symptoms. Um, when we look back and interview adults trying to find out when their symptoms started, we find that approximately a third of the time, they can trace their symptoms all the way back to, to their childhood. Uh, the other most common age range where the symptoms will start to show up for the first time is, a, is around early adulthood, um, somewhat akin to those the, the college years, that there appears to be another spike where many, many folks start to report that they're having their first symptoms from age 17 to, to 24 when they trace back when they started experiencing those those experiences. So how do we diagnose it? Because um, there's a spectrum, right? You, we, there's a spectrum of disorders. Right. Well, with, with OCD, what we look for is, is the person experiencing obsessions. So first we have to verify that the person is actually having obsessions. And so we want to make sure that they're having these thoughts that they don't want that are coming in against their will at times where they don't want them and that these thoughts are creating great distress, that they're causing them anxiety. Once we establish that, then we look to see, are they experiencing compulsions? Are they doing any repetitive behaviors in order to try to neutralize that experience? But then we also have to take a look at, okay, how much time are these occupying? How much distress do these cause? You know, for instance, if someone has these experiences of an obsession and a compulsion and it occurs once a day for a few seconds and it does not cause them any distress, they would not meet diagnostic criteria. But if a person is spending three hours on their obsessions and compulsions per day and they're being caused great distress by having them, then we know that it this is falling into the, the category where we start to feel even more and more confident about it being OCD. We have a number of psychological questionnaires with great data behind them that we often use to help screen folks where they, we ask them many different questions and to look at their comparison answers to folks who suffer OCD so we can use that as an additional tool. So uh, between looking at the criteria and looking at some of the screening instruments that we have, we can make a pretty clear diagnosis of what obsessive-compulsive disorder is, and uh, particularly in comparison to, to some of the other disorders that we, we compare it to and make sure that we're not um, bumping into by accident. I was wondering when you were talking about the type of um, compulsion where you don't see the behavior, but somebody's experiencing it in their mind, how would you know to assess for it? Um, what would somebody clinically be looking at if they had that type of obsessive thought, but the compulsion was 
what was going on in the mind. What, yeah. Would it be the same thing? I mean, you're not seeing repetitive behavior. Yeah. What the person who suffers with that type of compulsion, what they'll typically complain of is that they'll say, I waste a lot of time. I'm not as efficient as I can be because they may be spending hours per day thinking about something that happened earlier in the day and not able to focus on their work, not able to focus on their their studies or their their role functioning in certain areas. So over time, these compulsions, whether they're behavioral or whether they're mental compulsions, start to eat up more and more time. Also, what you start to notice is that over time, because these compulsions really don't work to get rid of the person's anxiety, these individuals start to become more anxious over time, and they will start to tell their doctors, tell their providers, family members that they're becoming more and more anxious. And it's also not unusual that you'll find them starting to back away from activities that they used to do, that they used to enjoy. You know, there's a, a certain sort of life shrinkage that can go on, uh, whether it's a behavioral compulsion, compulsion or a mental compulsion. Is there, um, you know, is it possible to have obsessive thoughts or compulsive behaviors but not have OCD? Um, there are several things that can look like this. Um, for instance, there are, there are folks who will say, you know, I have a lot of anxious thoughts that go around and around. For instance, there's another condition we call generalized anxiety disorder. And many times a person with generalized anxiety disorder will have many, many worries. They'll, they'll be focused on a worry over and over again. But there are some differences. Um, the obsession hits like a lightning bolt that the person all of a sudden has the thought of, oh my goodness, you know, what if that, what if my hands got contaminated when I touched that, that doorknob? The person with generalized anxiety disorder, that worry will be typically described, you know, what I call, it's almost more like rumbling thunder. It's kind of heard in the distance. Sometimes it's heard more loudly, but it doesn't come in quite like lightning, but it's always there. The other difference between obsessions and general worries Obsessions, we have a, a term that we say they are egodystonic, which means they tend to go against what a person's value system is about. For instance, many folks with OCD have worries about, you know, what happens if I get an urge to, to harm my loved one? And it's the furthest thing from their value system, from their principles that they would ever want. And so they don't accept it. They recoil against it. They want to chase that thought away. Many times with general life worries, we're focused on things that, what we would call egocentonic, that uh, a person says, you know, I, I, I want to pass that test, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to worry about what I can study on it because I really want to pass that. Um, it's not really going against their identity. You know, one thing we, that I, I teach my patients is that if, if you want to know what a person values the most, Look at what their OCD is attacking, and it will almost always go against something that they value very highly. For instance, a person values their health, it's very likely the OCD will attack health-related issues. If they value their spirituality, it's very common that the OCD will attack that and make them start to worry that maybe my spiritual life isn't um, as good as it needs to be. So we also, but the real immediate difference between worried thoughts and thoughts that just go round and round and obsessions is that obsessions 
are defined in OCD as those things that require compulsions afterwards. So you will always see in OCD a person will do something to try to not have that thought. Now, many times with general, generalized worries and those anxieties that we have with those, a person may not necessarily do a compulsion to try to stop those worries. But with OCD, we always see some sort of action, whether it's behavioral or a mental action, where the person's trying to do something to neutralize that thought. When we're talking about ruminations or mm-hmm. somebody ruminating, are we mischaracterizing obsessive thoughts? Um, sometimes we do that. And I've, you know, I've um, been in many conversations outside of the office where people will describe themselves as saying, oh, you know, there I go obsessing again. And when, when you, you ask them and you listen carefully to what they're saying, they're really not talking about obsessing, but they're, they're talking about a worry. You know, for, for instance, someone's worried. You know, uh, I just obsessed to wondering if I, if there's going to be enough funds funds in my child's um, college savings account. And when you talk to this person, say, "Well, is this really an obsession?" And as they talk to you about it, you know, one thing I'll ask them is, "Well, you know, when you have that thought, what do you do about it?" And many people say, "Well, I, I worry about it for a while, but then I figure, well, I'll I'll check my statements, you know, at the end of the month and see how we're doing." A person with OCD, if they have an obsession, they don't feel the luxury of waiting a month. Uh, OCD, in a sense, is, it's a lot like a, a tantruming four-year-old. It wants attention right away. It is not patient. You know, the, the brain, when it has an obsession, in a sense, almost screams for immediate relief. And we'll be right back um, after this commercial to talk more with Dr. Brady about obsessive-compulsive disorder. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Fitness is important to keep your body in tip-top shape now and aging gracefully for the future. The Fitness Momentum Show with Coach Michael Merlino is designed to be your guide to fitness and running, whether you're a beginner or ready to run your next marathon. By paying attention to and following the tips offered by Michael and his guests, you'll be able to essentially be your own trainer. Get the most out of your fitness regimen and tune in every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Charles Brady, who's the director of the Lindner Center of Hope's Obsessive Compulsive Disorder and Anxiety Treatment Program. And um, we were getting an opportunity to talk while you all were listening to a commercial, and I asked Dr. Brady um, how he got interested in treating folks that have obsessive compulsive disorder. So um, I guess last year live now. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I had the good fortune of... Um, of timing on my side. Back in the early 90s when I was um, starting out of my career, there were some uh, very neat things going on in psychiatry and psychology back then. Um, At that point, we had two things going on. We had a new generation of medications coming into play, the the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, things like Zoloft, Prozac had been around for a while, and there were a number of these new medications where folks were, were getting pretty good responses to when they were suffering with OCD. Uh, we also had some of the initial work being done on the cognitive behavioral therapies. They were showing that they were proving effective. But the neatest thing that really got me hooked was that's also the time where PET scans came in to wide proliferation. And PET scans were, are a very neat scan because they actually show how the brain is functioning almost in real time. You can actually see the the different areas of the brain when they're overactive, underactive, based on the the, the types of neurotransmitters that the the PET scan is looking at. And what we saw back then, there, were, there was a fascinating study by uh, Dr. Schwartz out in um, California at that time. And what he did is there were two studies. There was one study where they put people on medication who had OCD, and they took basically before and after pictures of the brain. And what they noticed was there were very specific parts of the brain that, in a sense, cooled down as people got better. And they saw not only did the medications help, but they could see that the brain changed as a result of the help the medications were were given. But what Dr. Schwartz wanted to see, at that point, we saw that cognitive behavioral therapies were were helpful, but he wanted to see, well, what is the effect on the brain of these therapies? And so he did a very similar study in which a group of patients with OCD, they had brain scans before treatment, and it showed the same part of the brain that was, in a sense, overactive, and they went through cognitive behavioral therapy, and they got better. And so they did scans of the brain afterwards. And what they saw is, is in the after pictures, the brain changed also for the positive. In fact, the, the brain changes looked nearly identical to the changes in the brain of the patients who had been put on medication and got better. So that was fascinating to me as a young psychologist because this was one of the areas that we saw so clearly the connection between the mind and body that we really got a sense of you know, the things that I do, you know, the, the thoughts that I have, the behaviors that I do, if I can start to do those differently, if I can start to change my relationship to my thoughts and change my actions, reduce my compulsions, 
not only do I have less symptoms, but I actually, in a sense, recalibrate my brain in a very positive, healthy way. And, you know, seeing that evidence, you know, so strong was, you know, too, too good to stay away from. Now, knowing that, I, that when we treat someone that we can say, okay, we're not just going to help teach you how to tough it out for the rest of your life, but you know, when you do these treatments, whether it's medication or medication combined with cognitive behavioral therapy, you will have the ability to actually get your brain recalibrated. And so you won't be just having to tough it out the rest of your life. You will actually feel less anxious as your life improves and as we start weakening these rituals as we start weaning off the compulsions and helping you you face the things that you've been avoiding. That's a tremendously positive message for people who suffer so with this. Oh, I, I think it's tremendously empowering. I mean, you know, it, by, the, by the first or second session, I, I always make a point during treatment to, to teach people about that study, to teach people about what they have the possibility to do in a positive sense not just to, to, to get better, but really to kind of change the functioning of their own brain. So it sounds like medication is an effective treatment. Cognitive behavioral therapy is an effective treatment. Are there other treatments that are effective as well? Um, those are the, the two frontline treatments. There, there are some um, surgical procedures that have been developed for individuals who um, have not responded to the other treatments, but uh, when, you, when you combine the medication treatments and the cognitive behavioral therapies, if, if a person can participate in treatment and have treatment available, um, at, at least 80% of the folks who have OCD should expect to see very, very positive gains as a result of the treatment. Um, the, the treatments are very effective. You know, the OCD, I remember from some of my mentors early in my practice, that they remembered back in the 60s thinking of OCD as one of those chronic, almost untreatable conditions. Now in, in 2015, you know, by far and away, it's one of the psychiatric illnesses that we know perhaps the most about, particularly when it comes to this mind-body connection and how a person can help themselves get better. Is there, um, is like mindfulness or yoga or um, biofeedback or any of those helpful? Um, all, all those are helpful. And in many of the, the cognitive behavioral therapies, aspects of mindfulness will be brought into it. Um, there are two cognitive behavioral therapies that have, have shown the most evidence for helping someone with OCD. The most traditional one is called exposure and response prevention. Exposure, meaning that I'm gradually exposing myself to those things that elicit the fear. And response prevention, meaning I'm gradually weaning myself off of the compulsions. And by doing that, the person helps with that recalibration. The other cognitive behavioral therapy that's gaining more and more evidence for treating OCD is something called acceptance and commitment therapy. And acceptance and commitment therapy involves mindfulness as one of its one of its primary tools. And basically what a person employing what we call ACT in their recovery will learn to re react differently to their thoughts. And mindfulness as a tool helps that person be able to recognize, I don't have to do anything to these thoughts. I can experience, experience these thoughts almost like hiccups. Now, not pleasant, I don't like them, but I really don't have to do anything. Because one thing we know about thoughts 
if you don't do anything to a thought, it's going to continue to move. You know, the old cliche of the stream of consciousness, that's a wonderful metaphor because that's really how thought works. They, they flow in a stream. And if we don't participate in our thoughts, if we watch these thoughts go by like clouds, no matter how yucky they are or how beautiful they are, they will continue to move on through. It's only when the OCD kind of lures us into trying to push away those thoughts that we start to fall into the OCD trap. So uh, now with the addition of acceptance and commitment therapy in a in the fight with exposure and response prevention, we now have two very powerful cognitive behavioral therapy tools to, to help individuals. Typically, how long um, does it take to recalibrate your brain like this? Um, to get it started, not very long. There um, was a study out not too long ago where they actually saw some of the brain change happening in as little as three to four weeks. And this was a study that um, Dr. Gorbis out in California did a few years ago. And what they found was for individuals who were participating in intensive cognitive behavioral therapy where they're doing exposure and response prevention several hours a day, what they found is when they scanned the brains within three or four weeks, they were already noticing those changes that were happening in the brain, same types of behavior, same types of changes that occurred with folks taking medicine, but actually what was interesting and surprised a lot of people was the changes in the brain as a result of the intensive cognitive behavioral therapy actually happened a few weeks sooner than the changes in the brain with medication. Hmm. That's good to know. Yeah, but but both medication and cognitive behavioral therapy are very powerful tools. Many times people will ask, well, you know, should I consider medication? Should I not consider medication? And together they can make a a really good team approach when you combine the medication with the cognitive therapy. What um, we know is that if a person takes medication alone and they have no experience with cognitive behavioral therapy, what we know is if they stop the medication down the road, studies have shown that they have upwards of an 80% chance of relapse. Now, when a person takes medication and cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy alone, when they discontinue treatment or when they discontinue medication, their chance of relapse goes down to only 20%. So what we know is both can be effective reducing symptoms, but when you add the cognitive behavioral therapy into the treatment plan, if a person decides at some point that they no longer want to be on the medication, that they want to challenge medication and come off of it, their chance of relapse reduces greatly. Well, that makes sense because you're retraining how you think with cognitive right. behavioral therapy. You're, re- you're really retraining how you view the world and how you experience thoughts. So. That makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah, I tell a lot of patients who are trying to wonder about medication or not, I, I compare cognitive behavioral therapy to, to learning how to sail. Sailing is, is pretty complicated to learn. There's a lot to learn from it. And so if we were teaching someone to sail and we had to take them out on the Atlantic Ocean in a nor'easter, it's going to be very hard to learn. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, we would want to find a nice bay or harbor somewhere that's protected where the water's quieter so they can get the sailing skills. And then if they want, go, let them go out on the ocean. So sometimes medication is what's used to, to quiet the waters so the person can learn the skills. 
So it's it, it's something that you know definitely we we don't have any uh, philosophical approach saying oh, a person should just be on cognitive behavioral therapy or don't do medication. No, many times they partner together very well and can be a very nice um, combination for successful treatment and recovery. Um, one of the things I wanted to remember to ask you about was hoarding because mm-hmm. at one point hoarding was viewed as an extreme kind of form of obsessive compulsive disorder, but that's all changed now. So could you um, explain to our audience what hoarding is and sure. why it's Here. not OCD anymore? Mm-hmm. For many, many years, hoarding was considered a subtype of OCD. But now with the, the new diagnostic manual, DSM-5, that's come out, hoarding is now classified as, as its own condition. And this is a result of a lot of the studies that have been done on hoarding, looking at the, the brain function that's going on in hoarding and seeing how similar, but also how different it is compared to OCD. Uh, a few interesting things comparing the two of them. Although hoarding used to be thought to be a subtype of OCD, actually what we're finding now, the demographics of hoarding, there are actually a higher percentage prevalence rate for hoarding than there is for OCD. So there are actually more individuals suffering hoarding than what we would call obsessive compulsive disorder. Hoarding many times will have a component that is just like OCD, a person holds on to something and they're afraid if I if I get rid of this newspaper, maybe there'll be information in there that I'll need later. And so in order to reduce their distress, they hold on to the newspaper and they don't throw it out. That part is very much like obsessive compulsive disorder. But what we find is individuals who suffer from hoarding usually have two other things that they also struggle with. Most individuals will have impulse challenges where they're, they gather things that they think either may be important or they shop and they see something that they see as an incredible bargain. So even though they may not need another bed comforter, there was one that was 80% off and they feel a rush that, oh, I have to get that. That's such a bargain. I can't pass that up. And that's not fear-based, but that's almost, in, in some ways, almost like an addiction type of reaction, that, that impulse to, to get that item. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more about uh, um, impulsive shopping and hoarding and, and the addiction components of all that right after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Good childhood mental health is critically important. Early patterns of emotions and thinking shape children's behavior from preschool into the teen years and beyond. 
but understanding young kids can be a challenge. Tune in to Child Psych Central. Discover the kid brain with Dr. Beth Onafrak. Each week, we will reveal how brain function and child development drive young children's daily behavior. Listen every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. It's one of the best things that you can do as a parent. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, folks. This is Mary Witt, and our guest today is Dr. Charles Brady, who's the director of the Lindner Center of Hope, Obsessive-Compulsive Disorder and Anxiety Treatment Program. And before going to break, Dr. Brady was talking about something that was hitting a little close to home for me anyway in terms of shopping and finding this amazing deal and thinking, like, wow, this is too good to pass up, um, and, and how that connects to hoarding and, and obsessive um, and obsession and compulsion. So did you want to continue that thought? Sure. When we talk about looking at the difference between hoarding and obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, many times we see three things going on with hoarding. One, there is that obsessive compulsive component of I'm afraid to get rid of something because I'll, I'll feel anxious if it turns out that I would have needed that in the future. Then there's also that impulse component where a, a person has difficulty gathering things. It's something that I call that, that there's an inflow problem and an outflow problem. There's too much coming in to the person's environment and not enough going out. But also what we find consistently with, with folks who struggle with hoarding is they often struggle with organizational skills. You know, they have difficulty grouping things into to categories, whereas uh, many folks might put three things in four general categories. You'll sit and you'll talk with a person who's struggling with hoarding, and they may have 27 different categories, which makes it much more difficult for them to make those decisions on, okay, what's absolutely necessary to keep, what would be a luxury to keep, and uh, what has to um, get thrown away or discarded or um, recycled. So with all those three um, prongs in it, 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 that's what we see as separating it from OCD, that it's, it's got you know, many additional components to it that um, separated and have now given it its own classification as its own disorder. I'm sure that hoarding's always been around, but it seems like in the last 10 years or so, we've become more aware of it or it's become more prominent in the media. Is it because we're, we have more disposable income and people can hoard more or is it just, we're that's, just getting more media attention? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we, we don't know exactly why. The, you're exactly right. The media attention on hoarding um, is... I think a primary factor. There are many. There have been several shows on, on hoarding, um, the treatment of it, seeing folks kind of work through the hard work of getting their their lives decluttered and you know organized. Um, which I'm I'm grateful for that it's raised the awareness of it, um, and I think perhaps with the awareness raised of it, I, I think that people are starting to you know talk to 
the doctors more about it to let others know saying, oh, okay, we're not the only one who, who has this. Um, and so I think that's bringing it to the point where it's, it's more conversational than it used to be. I mean, when you step back and you look at some of the early studies on OCD going back about 15, 20 years, there was one study that suggested that on average with OCD, and at that time it, that included hoarding, that people were waiting 17 years from the initial onset of their symptoms before they would seek help for it. And if you think about the, the head start that OCD would get back then, 17 years to grow and to fester before a person would be able to feel comfortable enough or desperate enough to seek treatment for it, that's a, that's a big head start. Now, my hopes is I've yeah. not seen a study that's looked at that currently, but my hopes with, with all the positive media attention on OCD, on hoarding with the efforts that have been going out to pediatricians, to teachers, to counselors, that um, my hope is, is that that study is way inaccurate at this point and that hopefully people are now getting treatment much earlier in the process when it's a lot easier to, to have the mind shift, refocus when you catch it earlier in the process. Yes, that's a long time to suffer. Yeah. Um, how can people get a hold of you or, or what, what do you do with the Lindner Center um, and what is the Lindner Center? Where is it located? Yeah. The Lindner Center is just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, in Mason, Ohio. And we're a freestanding psychiatric mental health facility. Uh, we're partnered with the University of Cincinnati's Department of Psychiatry. And we offer treatment for um, many disorders, but we do have a specialty track for folks who suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder. We have in our general outpatient practice, we will treat many folks with OCD as outpatients, but we also have the ability for adolescents and adults to do intensive treatment within our residential programs, the Sipsy House and the Williams House. And those are times where folks, uh, where they, they need that very intensive several hours a day of rolling their sleeves up and doing their uh, cognitive behavioral therapies, uh, where we're able to provide that for them. And how can people get a hold of you or the Lindner Center? What's the best way? Yeah, the easiest way is just to call us through our main uh, phone number is 513-536-HOPE. And they can um, either ask for me or ask for uh, information regarding our OCD and anxiety treatment. Um, I guess that the most important thing is that for people to understand is that OCD is treatable. There's a good recovery rate in OCD and that we, we have effective treatments for it. If, if, if somebody's out there struggling right now, um, what's your best advice to them? Yeah, the best advice, if they haven't spoken to a doctor, start there. Whether it's their family care doctor, their pediatrician, uh, the education for physicians on OCD has improved greatly over the years and they are now able to recognize it, they're able to diagnose it, and they're able to you know, help the person get pointed in the, the right direction. Um, there's also um, very good resources on the internet now. Um, one of the best I can recommend is the International Obsessive Compulsive Foundation. If they just do a Google search on the IOCDF, 
and go to their website. They have a tremendous wealth of information about what is OCD, how to find treatment, how to find a, a therapist who is trained in providing the appropriate treatment in your, your area, how to find a physician who can handle the medications, or if you need intensive treatment options, they have uh, a list there that you can also find um, help um, nearby. Are there um, support groups that are helpful for folks that have OCD, like peer support groups? um, Support groups for OCD are becoming more common. Um, In Cincinnati, we actually have three of them now, um, which gives us um, several options for folks. Um, Some of them are designed for the individual themselves. Um, There are other support groups that are designed to support the family members of the person who's suffering because OCD is not just an illness that that focuses on one person. It will attack the whole family system because it's very common for a person to try to enlist their family members to do their compulsions for them. And once that starts to happen, then it really starts to take its toll on the family system. Um, Thank you so much for um, spending this hour with us. It's flown by. And um, I, I think for all of our listeners, um, to underscore what Dr. Brady is saying is that, as with any chronic illness, this affects the whole family. And um, you can, uh, the Linder Center, does, do you have a website, Dr. Brady? Is it www.lindercenter.org? Um, yes, yes, right. And if you just look up Linder Center of Hope in Google, you can find it directly to the, the website. But... Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. It's been, it flew by. It it absolutely did, Mary. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you, and have a great week, everyone. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.